0: I'm grateful to see you all again this evening, and if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Colossians chapter 2, Colossians chapter 2, we'll look at verses 1 through 19. Oh, I I need to say this too, Uh, we'll meet again tomorrow night, and then Thursday night, they have always asked me on Thursday nights to do a Q&A time. So if you come with questions, I don't know very much. I'm a pea brain, but I stay in my lane. So my lanes are very few. Um, I have a lane of C.S. Lewis. Most of my academic work is on C.S. Lewis. Most of the books I've written are about C.S. Lewis. So if you have a C.S. Lewis related question or in the realm of apologetics, as best I'm able, I, I can stay in that lane. Another lane is evangelism and discipleship I taught courses in evangelism and discipleship and I love leading people to Jesus. So if you have questions about that, please bring those. And I work in the area of spiritual formation and so on. I, if you ask me a question about, again, Jesus is a perfect entheotropic person, manifest in the hypostatic union, I could answer what that's about, but it's not my lane. So. Let's steer towards the lanes I've got, and if you've got questions in those areas, I'd be happy to address them, okay, if that's okay. So that's Thursday. All right, now here we are, Colossians 2, 1 through 19. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf, and for those who are at Laodicea, and for all those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with persuasive argument. For even though I am absent in body, nevertheless I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ." For as you, therefore, have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in him... All the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him you have been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority. And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in your trespasses and transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us of all of our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us in which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Therefore, let no one act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Things that are mere shadow of what is to come. But the substance, the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels, taking a stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the entire body, being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments, grows with a growth which is from God. Gracious Heavenly Father, open our minds to understand your word, Open our hearts to receive what it has to say, and open our imaginations that we might see applications in our own life as we seek to become more intimate with you, as we seek to mature by engaging in the ministries you've set before us, unique in each of our own circumstances. I know, Father, I don't have much more to offer than crumbs. I don't think that's insignificant because I believe you are still in the business of taking crumbs and multiplying them and distributing them so that people would leave satisfied. I pray that each person this evening would receive from you that which he or she needs to hear given their particular station in life. I also pray, Father, for uh, Art and Becky, this problem that happened in their house. I pray, Father, that you'd meet them at the place their need. And as Art said, you know, he knows it, relief is coming, but unexpectedly, I pray that you'd meet their need unexpectedly. Selfishly, I pray, pray too, for Tim Hosell, my dear, dear friend. And I pray that whatever's going on with him, you would heal him immediately and give him grace. We ask these things all in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. Um, As we've been looking, Paul has linked intimacy with God, with missional commitments, and it's essential to maturity in Christ. You will not grow in Christ to the degree you might if you're not engaged in some sort of missional activity. He writes writes now in this section that we've just read to alert the church in Colossae to potential distractions from that growth and from that opportunity for ministry. I want to look at the warnings, and I want to look at the preventatives, and I want to look how we get back to the mission. So let's start here, the warnings. He writes of a true knowledge, and the, 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 this word epigonosco, the most intimate word for knowledge in the New Testament, I, I have never seen the frequency of that word used in more places in a com, compact space than in Colossians. And he says here that he writes of a true knowledge of God's mystery that is Christ himself. There's an intimacy with God that we will not know until we are connecting with Christ more deeply in our life and in what he is calling us to do. All redemptive history is lived in expectation of the coming of the Messiah. Uh, you can recount even from the promise in Genesis 3.15, after the fall, God has told Eve that one of her seed would crush the head of the serpent. Um, It's interesting that if you go to Genesis 4.1, when Eve gives birth to Cain, she names him, but she says, for God has given me an Ish-eth Adonai. It's actually Ish-eth Yahweh. God has given me a man-God. She had the expectation that Cain was a fulfillment of this prophecy. She was looking for something like the incarnation in the first issue of her womb. She would, of course, be bitterly disappointed. And you know the story. But right from the beginning, there was an expectancy about the coming of Christ. Um, You've got Abraham, who's told, Abraham, I will make you a great nation. I will give you this land. And one of your descendants will be a source of blessing to the whole world. There's the expectation early on. It's repeated over and over again. It's repeated with Isaac. It's repeated with Jacob. Then there was a tribe of Judah that was selected of the 12 tribes. God passed by Reuben and Simeon and Levi. Judah, the Messiah, would come from. And then we have the house of David. And everybody's looking and waiting the true knowledge, the mystery that would be manifest in the coming of Christ himself. I I love to use this image. Um, I read it in C.S. Lewis's Surprised by Joy, uh, his, his autobiography, at least as far as moving from atheism to faith. And he kind of reasoned his way through atheism and materialism as a supporting worldview for his atheism. He reasoned his way out of agnosticism. He reasoned through the plethora of world religions, came to the place where he believed there was one God, and he finally believes that he couldn't go any farther. He said, I didn't think I could know God personally any more than Hamlet could know Shakespeare. Two years later, after a long night talk with J.R.R. Tolkien, he said he realized that his image was a good image. And in fact, if Hamlet was to ever know Shakespeare, it couldn't happen unless Shakespeare the author wrote himself into the play as Shakespeare the character and made the introduction possible. So they think that's what happened in the incarnation. And here's Paul saying, the mystery is here. It's in the coming of Christ. And then he says in verse 4, make sure about this and about your relationship with Christ and the way your life should be connected with him, make sure no one deludes you. And Paul expresses some confidence in the Colossi church that they wouldn't be deluded because, he says, he sees they have good discipline. He rejoices to see the stability of their faith. Uh, they were building lighthouses, not outhouses, on this foundation of faith. He repeats what he told them in chapter uh, 1, verse 10. Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Uh, did, I, did I tell the story about um, uh, Howard Hendricks when I mentioned walk in a manner worthy of the Lord the other night? I had it in my notes to say, but I think I skipped over it. The word there for walk in a manner worthy of the Lord is parapateo, from which we get the word parapetic about walking. And I remember years ago hearing Howard Hendricks. Did any of you ever hear him speak? He was one of my favorites. And he said, it doesn't work like this. It's not that a child is sitting behind the bars in their crib in jail, right? They can't get out and about. And they see somebody walking by the crib and they say, wow, that's strange peripatetic action. And they jump out of the crib and they start running in the Olympics. It doesn't work that way. We all saw it. Child starts to crawl. And then eventually, maybe crawls over to the couch and picks himself up erect. Then, after a while, they take a step and fall down. And then another step and fall down. And then they take two or three steps. As they get a little bit older, they can start to run a little bit. And then, maybe eventually, they go run in some race. It's a slow process. But to walk in a manner worthy of Christ means we engage in that process. We stay in that process. And he says about them, um, As therefore you have received Christ, verse 6, As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Firmly rooted, built up, established in your faith. Yet still again he warns them. See, verse 8, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men rather than according to Christ. Now, my doctorate's in philosophy of religion. I am not opposed to philosophy. I have taught philosophy for years. And I don't want people to look at that and say, <laughs> say yeah, philosophy, it's for the birds. You get involved in philosophy, it's going to really delude you. I don't think that's what he's saying here. I don't know about you, but I run into this every once in a while, where a person will say to me, I don't need other books. I've got the Bible. If you're a farmer in Iowa working hard, hard uh, while you're farming your land, and you only have time for one book, and you're reading the Bible, you made the right choice. When somebody says, I don't need other books because I've got the Bible, I say, I don't think you're reading the same Bible I'm reading. My Bible doesn't close me down. It opens me up to discover something of the glory of God wherever I can see it, in sunrise, sunset, throughout the day, and even in the books as I read what other people have gleaned from God. This is a philosophy that is a deluding philosophy that he's warning against. And you see in the text itself, it's a philosophy of empty deception according to the tradition of men. It's not a philosophy that has its heart opened to seeing what God has for us in our world. The word philosophy literally means a lover of wisdom. I don't know anybody who would give fault to that. Have there been bad philosophers? Yes. But C.S. Lewis said, We need good philosophy for no other reason that we could refute the bad philosophy and move us closer to Christ. Okay, so... In him, he says in verse 9, the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. We want to focus on Jesus, and we want nobody to delude us so that we would get distracted from Jesus. I think one of the most poignant moments in the life of Christ is delivered to us in John chapter 6. Jesus has been teaching. He sees the people that have come out to hear him are hungry. He says to his disciples, Let's feed them. Philip's got kind of a calculator mind, and he says, "Lord, six hundred—or excuse me—a year's wages are hardly enough to feed even all these people a morsel." Andrew comes up to Jesus and says, "We've got a little boy's lunch: five loaves and two fish." Jesus says, "It's enough. Have them sit down." He prays over those loaves. He prays over those fish. He breaks them. And multiplies them and feeds everybody. It's the first free lunch program in the history of the universe. And everybody's eager. They want more. They want an economic savior who could fill their bellies. And they come up and they want to make him king. He sees there's a problem. He dismisses the crowd, puts his disciples in a boat, sends them to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. He goes up on the mountain to pray. That's the night, of course, where he goes walking on the water, and he comes to the disciples, and they're struggling at the oars. They see him. They're scared stiff. He tells them it's him. He gets in the boat. They get to the other side. And in, in the morning, these people who were fed the day before, they wake up, and boy, they're hungry again. Where did Jesus go? So they hightail it around the lake. They get to the other side, and they go up to Jesus, and what do They say. Moses gave our father's bread in the wilderness and they did eat. Referring to the manna they got every day, where's today's free portion? And he says, well, first let me correct your theology. It wasn't Moses who gave your father's bread in the wilderness and they did eat. It was my father who gave your father's bread in the wilderness and you did eat. And if you knew who you were talking to now, you would not ask for the bread that will leave you hungry again tomorrow. You would ask for the bread that leads to eternal life. They said, evermore, Lord. Lord. Give us that bread. He said, okay. I give you myself. Take me. Be satisfied in me. Find your fulfillment in me. I am the bread of life. And all these people thought he was nuts. And they left him and departed. Jesus turns to 12. It's a poignant moment. And he says, will you leave me also? They say, Lord, leave you. Peter said, Lord, leave you. Where would we go? You have the words of eternal life. The people who remember that are less likely to be deluded by somebody who comes from some distracting teaching. We'll build on it a little more. In him, the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. In him is the fullness of life. In him, he goes on to say in verse 10, you have been made complete. You got Abraham. And a- Abraham's amassed quite a fortune. He's got a lot of servants. Um, his nephew, Lot, has gone off to live in, in Sodom. And there are these four evil kings from the north who come down and defeat five kings from the south. And they take Lot captive. And Abraham's told, your nephew Lot's been taken captive, and Abraham mounts an army and he goes after these kings and he defeats them. He brings everybody back. King of Sodom says, Give us the people, you can keep all the stuff. And he says, I'm not going to take this stuff, unless you think you made me wealthy. I'm going to depend upon God. And God comes to him and says, Abraham, once again, recounting the Abraham covet, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to give you this land, and one of your descendants is going to be a source of blessing to the whole world. It's almost like you can hear Abraham say, well, 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 when are you going to give me these descendants? Well, in three generations, your people are going to go down to Egypt, and they're going to be enslaved there for about 400 years. It'll be 500 years in all, and they'll come back to this land. About 500 years, I'll make you a great nation. Well, when will I get the land? Well, about 500 years from now, you'll get the land. When is one of my descendants going to be a source of blessing the whole world? Well, in about 2,000 years, one of your descendants will be, Lord, what do you give me, he says. And God says, Abraham, your reward will be very great. I give you myself i give you myself and the question is is he enough for you we're at risk of being deluded if we think we're going to find something better someplace else and anybody who comes along with some sort of clever talk they can distract us from him paul knows that that will be problematic it will keep them from intimacy with god it will keep them from maturity in christ and it will keep them from mission This becomes really important to me, I think. Um, I have been a fan of Julian of Norwich. I don't know if you know her. I I read Lewis. Lewis opens more than wardrobe doors. I read the books he refers to. And and he liked Julian of Norwich, just medieval mystic. She wrote a book called Divine Revelations. In the time of the plagues in uh, England, she fell under uh, the plague and she was sick and she went into a coma. She said when she came out of it that God had visited her in that period of time. I don't know about you. I believe that God does sometimes show up in people's lives and dreams. I haven't had that experience myself, but I read about Joseph in the Old Testament. He had it. I read about Joseph, Jesus' earthly father. He had it to warn him to flee when Herod wanted to kill Jesus, and he had it warning him to come back to Israel. I have talked to five Muslims myself. This isn't secondhand information five Muslims myself who came to Christ because Jesus came to them in dreams. One of them is an imam in Senegal who became a Christian and now is a pastor of a church in Senegal. I believe these things happen. If you want to see, you got to test them against Scripture, and if there's anything in that dream that's contrary to Scripture, you know that God wasn't the source of that thing. But here's Julian of Norwich. She comes around. And she says, God came to her and showed her something as small as a hazelnut. When I first read it, I I, I remembered it as chestnut, so I've always said chestnut, bear with me. Something as small as a chestnut and said, all the great truths can be found in something as small as a chestnut. God made it. God sustains it. God loves it. Ever since I read that, I, I, I would see a chestnut and I would remind myself of the message. God made you. God sustains you. God loves you. I remember this one day I was walking across the parking lot at College Church in Wheaton. I had to go to the post office across town. While I was walking across, I looked down on the ground and there was a chestnut. I picked it up. I said, God made you. God sustains you. God loves you, Jerry. And I put it in my pocket. Came walking back. When I was walking back, car goes, pulls up in the parking lot, and I hear a voice on the other side. I'm on the passenger side. He says, Jerry, do you need a ride? And I looked in, and it was Nate Castle. Nate Castle had been a former student of mine. I had performed his wedding about 12 years earlier, and he got cancer of the jaw. They had to remove his jaw. So they took the little bone in his leg, and they refashioned another jaw. And his body rejected it. They took the bone in his other leg. And they fashioned a jaw. And they were able to put tooth implants in it. And I knew he'd been laid up with this for a year. And I hadn't seen Nate that whole year. But Claudia and I had prayed for him. And I looked in and I said, Nate, I don't need a ride. But I'm going to take one with you because I want to hear how things are going. He didn't have any disfigurement. They did a great job. How's it going? And he told me it was the toughest year of his life. While he was talking, I kind of reached into my pocket, and there was that chestnut. And I pulled it out, and I said, you know what, Nate? Maybe I found this for you. And I told him the story of Julian of Norwich. God made you. God sustains you. God loves you. He said, Jerry, could I keep the chestnut? I said, yeah, it's yours. About two weeks later, I gave an all-school communion at Wheaton College, and I told that story of Julian of Norwich and now the new addition the Nate Castle addition to the story. That December, on my birthday, somebody had been filling out false reports about me at Wheaton saying I wasn't working on my doctorate. And I was fired. Fired from Wheaton College. One of the darkest moments. You remember, John, and Amanda, when we went through that. And I was just Devastated. I went back to my It got straightened out. When it got straightened out, I got rehired and got a $7,000 raise. I should do this more frequently. <laughs> but at the time, it was devastating. And I go back to my office, and I have to go to another meeting. Everybody's cleared out for Christmas break already. And I go to my office, knowing I have to go to another meeting. It's going to be a sad meeting. And there's a young woman standing in the hallway. I don't know who she is. She's looking at somebody else's office. I thought she was looking to sign up for office hours after Christmas break. I go into my office quickly, and she walks into my office. And I said, I'm so sorry. I I, I really don't have time right now, but um, let me pray for you. I put my hand on her shoulder, and I said a prayer over her. And as soon as I was done, she had her hand out like this. I put my hand under hers, and she dropped three walnuts into my hand. I said, what are these? She said, I couldn't remember the kind of nut it was. (laughs) I said it was a chestnut. God made it. God sustains it. And her voice joined mine. God loves it. I go, why did you come by right now to give me this? You could have done it two weeks ago. You could do it two weeks from now. Wouldn't have meant as much for me as this very moment when I had just come from that meeting. Well, fast forward many years later, my wife and I have four kids, and they go go with their in-laws every other Christmas, and they're with us every other Christmas. When they're not with us, we go someplace with this other couple. And we were going to do a Dickens Christmas that year, and we were in Cambridge, England. Claudia's birthday is December 28th. So on her birthday, I said, what do you want to do, Claudia? And she says, I want to go to the Shrine of Julian of Norwich. It's not too far from Cambridge. I said, okay, we'll go. We found out we could get an early bus and we had to be out the door about 5.30 in the morning. As soon as I opened the door, guess what was on the threshold of the door? <laughs> a chestnut. And I just said, God's, God made you, God sustains you, God loves you. And we went to her shrine. You know what her gravestone says? She lived her life as an anchorist. She lived in a room probably about 20 feet by eight, 10 feet wide. People would come to her window and she'd give them spiritual direction. You know what her grave, she's buried there. You know what her gravestone says? Thou art enough to me. Thou art enough to me. Paul says, don't get distracted. If he's not enough to you, the likelihood of distraction grows stronger and stronger every day. It says also in him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by the circumcision of Christ. I don't know about you guys, but I read the Bible. It talks about circumcision pretty frequently. When was the last time any of you heard a really good sermon on circumcision? It's crazy to me for the frequency that it's in the Bible. We don't hear anything about it. I preached a sermon on circumcision once at a church. I was never asked back. (laughs) Am I the only one who thinks it's weird? Okay, Abraham, you're going to be a great nation. You're going to have this land. One of your descendants is going to be a source of blessing to the whole world. Now, here's what you have to do. You have to take every little boy who's born among your people, And you have to take the most intimate part of their body, and you have to cut the foreskin off of the end of their penis. Am I the only one that thinks that's weird? (laughs) Why did he put that in there? And I thought about it long and hard, because by the end of the Pentateuch in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses is using that for an image of intimacy with Christ, And here now Paul is talking about intimacy with Christ and he's using that image. What was it? Well, here's the scar. In every procreative act, there was a visual demonstration that God was going to fulfill that promise to Abraham and that the Messiah would come. And then when he says, at the end of Deuteronomy, circumcise your heart, what's he saying? Take the most intimate part of your life before God and remove the thinnest veneer that you might be utterly exposed to God and have a level of intimacy with him. You have it a little bit in 1 John 1.9 where it says if we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The word for confess is homologeo. If you ever heard a word like it, it was probably homiletics. It's a course a seminarian takes to learn how to preach the Bible, and it means literally to say the same thing, to preach a Bible so that you will get it as best you can and it will be open and honest. When you confess your sins, you're saying basically, Lord, I am circumcising my heart before you. I don't want any pretense in my life between me and you. I want to enter into you in complete trust relationship. So he's talking about this intimacy. With him, you were buried in death and raised with him from the dead. Your life, well lived, will be lived focused on him. You may do a thousand other things as well, but Jesus integrates your life because he's at the center. I, I, I enjoy talking with Buddhists. And Siddhartha Gautama, the Buddha, when he started out, I think he was pretty well meaning, he was a king a prince, and he saw in his world that the people were suffering. He went out among them. And he thought, I need to alleviate the suffering of my people. Who could fault that? But I think he missed completely why they were suffering, and I think he missed completely the antidote to their suffering. He thought they were suffering because they had unfulfilled expectations. So his solution was, Eliminate all expectations. Completely eliminate all desire from your life. And you'll be fine. My friend, I, I mentioned Sunday morning, the, the guy who was a Tibetan Buddhist, um, one of the things he had to do in exercise in Nepal was he had to spend a week, he had to spend as much time as it took, but it was a week for him, in a mosquito-invested Trailer until he didn't care anymore if the mosquitoes bit him so he would completely suppress the desire to be without being bit that was supposed to be good that was supposed to teach him how to eliminate pain in his life this this seems counterproductive to me and when i meet Buddhists, i say i can appreciate the fact that you want to minimize pain but the bible is way better Because there are some things that are a result of our having unfulfilled expectations because those expectations are tethered to the wrong object. But Christianity is so much better. Augustine wrote about ordo amoris, ordered love. You put God first, put Jesus first, make him your first love. And then you can enjoy all these other things. You don't have to suppress desire. They won't be distractions from you if everything is integrated in Christ. He's number one. When he's no longer number one, any of these things can become a distraction. And here it is. Um, We're buried with him in death and raised with him from the dead. Our life will be lived focused on him, and you may do a thousand other things, but Jesus will be the integrating feature of your life. You won't do the things that you don't want to do because Christ has made that clear. You want to follow him. He's first. The gospel defined then is given to us in in, uh, verses 13 through 15. Real quick, let's just see what he says. This is glorious. The gospel that we're going to minister to other people. The gospel that we are building our life on. You are dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh He made you alive together with him, having forgiven all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of death consisting of decrees against us and which was hostile towards us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Stay focused on that. That should be centered. That's what you build your life on. That should be what you are ministering to others about. So the gospel is defined. And now Paul again drifts back to warning. He warns again about judges in verse 16, uh, judges who judge us for things inappropriately, about defrauders in verse 18. They appear spiritual, but they detract us from Christ because they get us involved in things that are accoutrements, not things that are central. We become, then he says, inflated without cause by fleshly mind. C.S. Lewis wrote in the Reflections on the Psalms, the worst of bad men are religious bad men. The quicker I might be willing to uh, die for my faith, maybe the quicker I'd be willing to kill for my faith. Or painted thus saith the Lord across my own opinions. We see it on occasion. A well-meaning preacher gets up and says, I'm not telling you this, this is the word of God. Have you ever heard that before? I confess, when I was a youth pastor, I said that a few times. I'm embarrassed about it now. No, when I preach or speak, I'm giving you my best take on it at that moment, having to do due diligence in my study. And I hope 10 years later, if I talk on that same passage, I'll be able to have gone deeper with it and see wider applications with it and so on. But we can get to the place where we begin to think that our opinion is equal to God's Word And we extend the doctrine of inerrancy to our own interpretation, and we can become utterly insufferable. And Paul warns against that. Stay focused on Jesus. Avoid the things of distraction where you will begin to inflate your own understanding or find teachers who have tried to inflate theirs. These people, when they come into the church, they weasel their way into our Christian communities and create big problems for us. If we note their characteristics, it will help us to minimize the damage they can do to us. Paul warns about it, but Paul steps in a long line of people who have warned about it. When he gives his last instructions to the Ephesus elders in Miletus on his way to Jerusalem, he says to them, I know after I depart there will be ravenous wolves that come upon you. They'll look good. They'll be in sheep's clothing. Beware and be ready. One of the ways we guard most is stay focused on Jesus so we won't be distracted by the false teachers. But Jesus talked about it too in Matthew 7, 1, right? Do not judge lest you be judged. You read that passage, though, and you go down a little further, and he says to us, do not judge, but you better be fruit inspectors. Because when the false teachers come who are wolves in sheep's clothing, you'll know them by their fruit. And you can't get fruit from thistles and thorn bushes. He says you want to look for good fruit. And if you see no fruit, you can begin to assume this is a person who's a detractor. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, John says, You have heard that Antichrist is coming. I tell you, many Antichrists have already come. And then he says in verse 19, They went out from you because they were not really of you. This Antichrist-like spirit can come out of the church. What are they like? In Jude and in 2 Peter, they start to give us descriptors. And here are the descriptors, and it's all related to, is there fruit in their life? Remember, intimacy with God leads to ministry for God. If a person doesn't have that ministry and fruit, it might be an indicator there's no real intimacy with God. So here's Jude. Jude. He says, these men revile the things they do not understand. Verse 12, they are autumn trees without fruit. Oh, it looks good on the outside. There's all the trappings, but you go to pick the fruit and there's nothing there. There They're clouds without rain and an agrarian society without irrigation. If there are no clouds with rain, that's devastating to the society. They're hidden reefs. People's lives get shipwrecked on them. And consequently, I, I, I would suggest to you, you can minimize the damage by having a requirement for leadership even in your church. You may look like the things it says in Titus and Timothy, but where's your fruit? Dawson Trotman, we're born to reproduce. A person who's spiritually mature can reproduce spiritually. I think churches should have it as a standard. They should say, you can be a a leader at this church, but not if you can't show us the people you have led to Christ and discipled so that those people have gone and led others to Christ as well. Now, you can get an obnoxious person who could take that standard and be a nuisance at the church by hounding the board and so on. But I think if a church changed the standard, you have to have had that as part of your life to be in leadership at this church. If you don't have that, you're going to be making decisions, but they're not going to be decisions that are going to be advancing the fellowship towards making missional difference in our community. So how do you do it? Because maybe you've got board members who are really fine Christians, but nobody ever mentored them. Well, that's sad. If they haven't been discipled, then somebody needs to say, Let's, let's, let's find somebody to come disciple us. And let's go ahead and move in that direction. And then from now on, we're going to have a standard of leadership that will keep us from getting distracted from Christ and the mission of the church. The fact that the church is not reproducing in America is a mark of that. Think of it. Is it possible, do you think, to lead one person to Christ every four years and disciple that person so that that person could lead somebody else to Christ? shouldn't be that hard every four years. That would mean that the church in America would be having 25% growth every year. Let's say there's an attrition rate and it's only 12.5%. Still, that's significantly more than we're seeing now. Is it possible to lead one person to Christ every other year? It's not that hard. That's a 50% growth. Is it possible to lead somebody to Christ every year? And disciple. Every person in the congregation owning that as a value as they draw closer to Christ to make Christ known in their immediate world. That would be 100% growth of the church every year. It's not an undoable thing, but the church has set back, and consequently we've disengaged from the world, and we've disengaged from ministry in Christ, and we've become distracted, and we've become prey to anybody who comes along it makes it Jesus plus, or Jesus this and Jesus that, and not really focused on Jesus and Jesus' heart for the world. And I think, I really believe this with all my heart. We will then discover in verse 17, if we avoid this stuff, the substance belongs to Christ. Uh, Lewis wrote a letter to a little girl. It was one of the last things he wrote before he died. He was, he, he's on his deathbed. He writes this letter about three weeks before he dies, a letter from a girl in America who was, uh, uh, how many of you know Tim Keller? Do you know that name? Did you know Tim Keller's wife, Kathy, wrote to C.S. Lewis the last year of his life? And there's three letters to a little girl named Kathy in le- letters to children that are letters Lewis wrote to Kathy Keller when she was a little girl. It's interesting. But among those letters is this one letter he wrote to this girl named Ruth three weeks before he died. And he says to her, if you continue to love Jesus, nothing much will go wrong with you. And I pray you may always do so. In some senses in this chapter, Paul has that kind of concern for people. Be rooted in Christ. Be centered in Christ. Be engaged with Christ. And watch what begins to happen. Jesus even said, abide in me and what will happen? You'll go bear fruit. The fruit will be manifest of growing intimacy, with me and it will manifest growing concern for the things I'm concerned about. Powerful. Be like Jan sharing Christ with all of her neighbors and stuff. It's an exciting story you told, Jan. So, is it hard? No, it's not hard. You know why? As Augustine observed, our hearts are restless till they find their rest in thee. Find the restlessness in the heart of the person who's in your world. Love on them. Get to know them. Pray for them, and when you find the restlessness, say, I wonder if that restlessness isn't something that's causing you to scratch and claw and look for its proper object, and you can tell them about how the substance is in Christ. There's more I could say about this, but I think it's getting long, and the mind can't absorb more than the seat can endure, and we can pick it up there tomorrow night, and we can maybe pick it up in some of the Q&A time on Thursday. I hope this has been helpful. Let's pray. Father, we want to know you. We want to know your son. We thank you that we know your heart in knowing your son because we see you sent him for us and that we find our fulfillment in him, the bread of life. We want him. We want him to make sense of all the other aspirations and desires we have that are legitimate under you because Christ integrates them. And if all of these things are taken from us, we're going to be fine because we have Jesus. And help us in understanding that in our own life to have that same kind of confidence as we share Christ with others, knowing that if we say to you, Lord, what do you give me? Your answer will be to us like it was to Abraham. I give you myself that we might have the heart of a Julian of Norwich who can say, Thou art enough to me. And then, Father, when you add other things with that and we keep Christ at the center, then there's integration in all those areas and we enjoy the gifts you've given. We thank you for all this. For Christ's sake, amen.